Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. If you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Hey, everyone. It's Bailey Miles. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I've got Carol Matthews with me here today. Thank you for being here, Carol. Thank you for having me. Yeah. If you wouldn't mind, give us some context uh, to growing up and what, what some of your background was like. Um, okay. I, um, am originally from the Northeast. I am living in Oklahoma now, so it's a big change, but I, um, was born in the Washington DC area. Then I moved to Tulsa from Philadelphia when I was in junior high. So I'm very much an Oklahoman. Um, I grew up in a close knit family. Family was really important. I was one of four kids. Uh, my father worked in oil, which is what brought us to Tulsa. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she was a driven uh, worker. So when we were in school, she worked during school hours. And when we were in college, she worked at a college. And she wound up graduating with my younger sister with a degree. Oh, really? <laughs> so, yeah. So that don't kid yourself. That's the shaping thing when you're in humanities class with your mom. Yeah. So I, I did. I, we were all at school at the same time at ORU. So, uh um uh and then uh I've just been a storyteller all my life I think since I was two <laughs> and um and do you hear my dog do you hear no, her barking I it's can't hear her barking no no she's fussing at me but I can ignore her yeah so uh um so I, I storytelling has been my thing I loved music growing up and um just dreamed I was going to be a singer, but I think if people told you what my skill was, it was talking. <laughs> so I, uh, I sang and I sang all throughout high school and I sang in groups and bands and, uh, whatnot. But in my senior year in high school, I got calluses on my vocal cords. Oh, really? And it's like an athlete tearing, a a ligament or a tendon their senior year so everything was sort of pointing towards music for me I everything all my extracurricular activities were music I competed you know in high school you could go to contests and whatever and I always excelled and um was in all the show choirs <laughs> and I was out my senior year none of it none really and um, I couldn't sing I I had a really big range I couldn't sing three notes Clearly, I sounded like Kim Carnes when I spoke, and uh, we, which is probably a reference loss on you, but just it sounded like I smoke a pack of cigarettes okay. every hour. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that was a really changing thing, but um, I did still love music, so I uh, decided I wanted to do music videos. So that's sort of my trajectory. Really? So what, diving into that experience, you know, you said you love music, you love singing, and all of a sudden you had something that you loved and you're really passionate about, thought that's what you wanted to do. All of a sudden it was in some ways just not not an opportunity that you could keep pursuing. What was that like as you had to shift and, and change directions? Well, you know, I was 17. 
again, I can disliken it as an athlete. You kind of have this trajectory you think you're on. You think you know what you're going to do. You think you know how you'll pay for college or you know what you'll major in in college at least. And um, I had, I was so devastated. I couldn't really even talk to people about it. Uh, At the time, there was no really good prognosis either. Like there was no way to really get rid of the the calluses without surgery. And the surgery at the time was scalpel removal and the surgeons didn't want to do it because they were afraid they would permanently damage my vocal cords. And as it was, I was still able to talk and I was still able to, you know, communicate with people and use my vocal cords in the most, you know, basic way. So um, it was a horrible time in terms of just understanding who I was, right? Because you think I am Carol, I'm a singer. That's my thing. That's what I do. That's who I hang out with, hang out with singers. And um, and so, you know, it's funny, Bailey, I haven't thought about it in a long time, but that, it was just kind of a heartbreaking, heartache thing that I had to redefine who I was and how I saw myself. And it took years, I would mm-hmm. say. I was, well out of college before I kind of started getting my feet under me about who am I, you know? And so it was a struggle, but uh, I did learn early in my college career that I um, was a, somebody who wanted to be in the creative arts. So it did turn me toward, okay, what else can I do? Which I think, you know, that's the great thing about being alive and being a human and having a brain and having, it, the way God's made us is is that we get to take these things in life and then go, okay, what else, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, the ability to, you know, go through that. And obviously a lot of people have that identity crisis in a sense, because it's so much of, of who you are, what you do as like an athlete. A lot of people struggle once they get out of college or even high school sports and they're just into the world. So it's definitely identity shift. Um, but were your okay. siblings, were they involved in, in singing too? So is that something that you guys all did together? Uh, it's funny you ask that because the whole reason I did start singing, I had an older sister who was an amazing musician and I have an older brother who loved, loved, loved music, but it was nothing he ever pursued. In fact, to this day, you know, he's 61 now and he still is this uber successful businessman. I mean, so successful and he uh he's still his passion is music so those influences were surely there Kathy was my older sister was the one who got me singing um she and I would do duets or she would uh encourage me we sang in a small group together but there wasn't a family music thing though but the environment to support it was definitely there but they, I had, I was blessed with the supportive family. And the older I get, the more I realize that's not what everyone gets. Mm-hmm. But um, they supported me in whatever. And you know, I was looking at your questions, Bailey, and I was thinking about the things that shaped me in life. And and I have to say that one kind of theme in my life is, no matter what's been going on, I've had such a community of support, even though that community itself has changed through the years. Mm-hmm. But I had this memory of. Uh, um, wanting, dreaming to be in the 4th of July parade in our small town outside of Baltimore. And um, it just was like the most charming town. I just can't say enough. Bel Air. 
And they had this amazing 4th of July parade. And then the high school had high school ground, had the huge fireworks. And it's just, it was a dreamscape. It's movie, movie charm. And I decided at age five that I wanted to be in the parade. <laughs> and I wanted, and so anyway, it was a bike. There was a bike decorating contest. And I'm like, I want to decorate my bike. I want to be in the contest and I want to march in that parade. And, you know, that felt like the biggest deal to me, right? Uh-huh. And you know what? My whole family, my siblings and my parents, all sat in our living room all the day before the parade and decorated my little two-wheel bike. <laughs> and it was outstanding. But who do you think did all the work, right? My older siblings and my parents, you yeah. know, they did. And it was amazing and beautiful. And I was first place and I was in front of this whole cavalcade of bikes and kids behind me. And it was the biggest joy in my life that I look back on it. And I feel like that is such a truism for my whole life is that I've always had community help me pull off all my ideas. I've never been alone in it. And um, I'm eternally grateful because all my ideas require team of people and um I was set up early on to believe that I could do those things that I have in my mind and that there would be somebody there to help uh, that's that's an awesome story and it's such a good point because it does you know it's not we can't do things on our own you know it takes a, it takes a good community around you to support you to give you confidence to set you up <clears throat> and uh it's really cool that your family did that for you at such a young age so uh, naturally going from that were you uh, just kind of a natural goal setter, like things that you wanted to do, you'd go out and achieve and you had the support and because you had the support, you gained confidence over time. So it just made you feel like you could go do anything you wanted or what did that look like for you? That's a good question. I guess I felt um, I was a dreamer and I really still am. I, I'm a big dreamer. I love to wonder what could be done next and so um, goal setting and achieving wasn't part of the language of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere my brother surely picked it up, uh, but uh, not for us. It, that that kind of language came later for me. I mean, really, honestly, after college. Yeah. You know? But dreaming, so, though, dreaming was a big thing dreaming, for you and still yeah. is. Yeah, yeah that's my awesome. My mom encouraged that a lot. And she, my mother was a dreamer herself, and so she felt like anything's possible. And when when we came to Tulsa, our whole family stepped into a faith that we didn't really have previously. We were churchgoers, but we didn't really have any kind of vibrant connection to God or to faith or to um, anything that was really transformational you know, Mm -hmm. and when we came to Tulsa, we were exposed to people who had that, and one by one, um, individuals in our family made decisions to kind of adopt, uh, to become Jesus followers, and to have faith, and to start exercising that um, part of our life, and when you're a dreamer, and then you feel locked in with a big God, you know, that only adds gas to the fire of a dream, you know, because then you begin to learn and hear and read in the scriptures, like you're created and that God's made you with your certain gifts and talents and passions. So 
so that language started permeating how we talked, you know, and um, my mother was big for that. Yeah. And that's awesome. That's such a good point too, because, you know, having faith and, and that's really critical, but um, you know, it goes back to the point you just made where when you have faith, there's so many things that happen that you realize, you know, you can't do it on your own, like things, just intervention, things like that. But also going back to dreaming, you're not just a dreamer, but a doer. So, you know, you, you can dream all you want, but you have to do and take action too. So you were doing these things growing up, um, you got into music and then ultimately you had to kind of change your path a little bit. You wound up, you said going to RU, how did you wind up going to RU and why did you go there? Oh, I would love to tell you that I was just this super smart decision maker, but I, uh, I think ultimately I'm, I was a homebody and I wanted to stay in Tulsa. I did have plans to go to OSU and I did have a roommate there and I was excited ish, you know, about going. <laughs> yeah. But um, what I told everybody was ORU had a big television and film department, which it did, and that I wanted to pursue that. And so probably both things were true. <laughs> but Oral Roberts University was a very, um, as you can imagine by that name, you know, it was a Christian university. It was very conservative. It was um, a little antiquated, you know, with some of its uh, rules and whatever, but it wound up being a life-changing event for me to make that decision. So the way I came to that decision, I'm not so sure, but, but I'm grateful for that being there because I found myself in a school with a lot of international and uh, students from all over the country. Um, I have, I, I just said to my own son just the other day that going to ORU gave me friendships that when I travel for business into other states and, and major markets, I can almost always find a friend or a alum that I was buddies with in college to connect with. Um, I learned a lot there. I sat under teaching uh, on a spiritual level that um, was probably some of the world's best, you know, people would come in from all across the world to preach to our student body. Um, and then, you know, I learned things like really honest to gosh, something as basic that was really life-changing for me was I started running at ORU because they wanted fitness to be a part of the whole man, the well-rounded individual. And so I started running and um, that was something, oh, a lifetime habit I carried with me until I started having kids. So uh, anyway, Oral Roberts, it was good. It was a good, and I graduated with a degree in film and television, and I wanted to be a music video producer. That was yeah. my goal. Yeah. So what does that, what does that look like? So when you're in college, you're working towards that. What are the things you have to do? Did you have to do internships in the summer where you reaching out to people? I mean, what does that entail for someone that doesn't know? Well, so I knew that um, at the time I was, uh, you know, MTV started when I was in high, uh, June, well, ninth grade. So I, uh, at that point, was studying all of the music video producers, and they were all, the vast majority of very successful music video producers in the early years, in the early years, were uh, film commercial directors and producers. So I thought that's perfect. I'll go into advertising and I'll do film commercials. And so I uh, interned at uh, my junior and senior year um, at the largest ad agency in Tulsa. And so the way it looked, Bailey, was I was either working 
at that agency or I was in school or I was asleep. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was I was pulling, you know, a full course load and probably working 25 to 30 hours a week at the agency. So it was a lot. A lot of work. But it was, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I lived on campus. So, you know, my campus was literally a mile and a half from my home where I grew up, you know, and I, but I wanted to live on campus. So then you just add in the whole, uh, you know, staying up way too late and talking with your friends and going out and, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it was no sleep for four years no, or at least two years. But yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. So you're having this experience where you're getting to learn a little bit about the profession. You're in school, you're working, you're, you're having a social life too. So you're doing all these things. And then eventually you wind up, you know, leaving college and getting an opportunity to get in, in the profession you want to get in. How did that come about and what did you wind up doing? Well, because I, um, at the time I, I was, I was in a relationship with a guy who was a little older than me and I got the internship because he said, don't stop. Don't quit bothering them. Just keep calling them and telling them you want to work there. And I just was like, okay. (laughs) And, um, so I kept bothering them. And, uh, so I got this internship by persevering. I kept saying, do you have an opening now? Do you have an opening now? Do you have an opening now? And, uh, they started recognizing my name right away. And, uh, they finally brought me into an interview and they hired me. And then I was there for a little over a year and as an intern and um, they, uh, they wound up um, doing a going away party for me because they were acquired by a larger ad agency from Oklahoma City. And so they were downsizing all the staff and I had been there a year and a half and I was facing my graduation. And I was really hoping to get a full-time position there. And that was not in the cards because they were getting rid of people and whatever. But the guy who hired me, the vice president of the agency had a going away party for me and introduced me as the only employee that ever pestered their way into <laughs> a position. But I, I learned something, you know, I learned that you know, you can get in there and it wound up being a great experience. And I got a huge letter of recommendation and because they were so well known in the Midwest that opened the door to my next job, my next agency job. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a powerful lesson right there because, you know, persistence is, is critical. And I think as you look back and see a lot of people that have gone on to achieve, you know, their dreams or whatever they're doing, you know, there's an element of persistence that, that almost, you know, is borderline, you know, teetering on the the edge of, you know, maybe annoying a little bit, getting getting in in the way, but being persistent every single day, calling, sending letters, doing whatever it takes to get to that opportunity. And when you get there, obviously people are like, oh yeah, well, yeah, she's she's really good at what she does. So we're really glad she's here. So I think that's yeah. a, a big element that people don't realize. Like when you want something, you gotta go get it and you gotta work for it. And there's lots of things that happen, but um, you have to put the work in to get sometimes the opportunities that are that are in front of you you know Bailey I don't know the age range of your audience probably all all kinds of ages but I want to say that um the one thing I tell college kids about uh internships whether they're trying to get one or they're in one or even if they're in a first job you know they're just starting their career um I think probably my dad taught me this, but do not wait 
to be invited. Do not be, do not wait to be asked or told, do not wait to be told to do something if you see it needs to be done. I'm not talking about stepping out of line and taking on things that you don't belong doing, but um, when you're a peon (laughs) in an organization, there is so much peon work around you. You know, there's just, there's so much of the stuff that people don't want to do that kind of gets uh, shuffled down to the lower ranks of an organization. And so you can look at that one of two ways. You can look at it as like, I've got to get this done so I can get to the next better thing. Or you can just say, I'm going to make myself invaluable to this group. And I, at that agency, if I tell something needs to be done, I'm like, do you want me to do that? Can I do that? Can I do that? And one of the most boring things that an ad agency was we would do this thing called tear sheets. And we would go through periodicals of the, so Zebco Fishing was the account I was working on at that point. And there are all these, what we called fishing rags, which were magazine, magazine, magazines, all about fishing. And what we would do is I would tear out ads that were our competitors. And then what they would do is we would compute how much we felt the competitors were spending. That's how archaic it all was. Mm-hmm. The internet wasn't around, you know. So I would come in on Saturdays and go through magazines and tear and tear and tear and tear. And I remember a woman came in and she said to me, Carol, someday we're all going to be working for you. Because I was just sitting in there willing to do this grunt work on my Saturday in college. Mm-hmm. And I raised my hand to do it. No one asked me to. My internship wasn't on the line, you know? Yeah. And I just say to young people all the time, do the tear sheets, do the, raise your hand, empty the trash can, get the coffee, make yourself invaluable, make people go, how did I last without that person? And I'm telling you, what happens is you make people's lives better and easier and more pleasant and they're like, what can I do for this person, this young person? What can I do? And I will tell you my own experience. When I have those experiences with people, there's nothing I won't do for them. There's no one I won't introduce them to. There's no opportunity I would overlook for them. There's nothing I wouldn't invite them to because they're, they're always bringing value. Always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And don't wait, you know, go get it just do, do the work, but also, you know, make yourself invaluable. Like you said, like, that's, that's so important. And, uh, obviously you were doing a great job doing that. And people notice like the lady that told you that. So that's obviously <laughs> you do the work and you're like, Oh, is anyone noticing? And then all of a sudden, um, you know, someone says something and it gives you confidence to keep moving forward and doing a good job. So anyway, you wound up having a going away party, which is, you know, <laughs> I think, I think it shows that they cared about you to have a going away party. That's not, that's not always oh, the norm. Oh, sorry for me. Like, I don't want to overspeak it. It was like, you know, cake. Anybody would come where there's cake, right? Yeah. But I think they felt a little sorry for me because I think I was really expecting to get a job, there, you know. So sure. So just being kind. But. Yeah. We'll talk about the next job that you got. Transitioning out of that, you're looking for a new job. Uh, you know, things don't necessarily go the way you might have thought or wanted it to go, but you just are looking for the next step forward. What does that, what did that look like? And how did you wind up at the next spot? Well, I wound up uh, moving to Kansas City. I was dating somebody who lived there and I was now graduated from college and I felt very anxious to get a job and Tulsa market 
had gone downhill, as you could, as I told you, you know, um, the biggest agency in town was laying off, um, and uh, other economies in Tulsa weren't doing so well, but in Kansas City, it was going very well. So what I did was I applied for several jobs in Tulsa, got zero offers, applied for uh, several entry-level jobs in Kansas City, and got four offers. And uh, they were all aware of the agency I had worked with in Tulsa, and they were all um, impressed by a letter of recommendation from that agency. So um, that opened doors in, an, in an, a market that actually had jobs. And so I moved to Kansas City, worked for a huge agency, Bernstein Ring, and um, it's not a lot to tell because I didn't get into production. I just took the job I could get, which sounds like a good idea, but if I had my life to live over, I would have been a little more strategic. I was when you when you go to work in the huge agencies, your job gets whittled down to more specific tasks because they have more people, right? Mm -hmm. So people have more specific jobs on specific clients. When you're in a small agency, there's more all hands on deck, and you're you're more likely to get a broader range of experience. I didn't know that then, and so I wound up being completely miserable in a media job. That is not me. It's crunching numbers and taking orders, and I, I might as well have been an accountant, and I was miserable, and I wasn't there but a year, and then I, uh, through some relationships, went to work for a, a video production company, which changed everything. So I left advertising and was able to get a video job and I was very hesitant about it because I couldn't figure out where my music video dream would come true <laughs> like I, I still had that dream but I was like I just got to get out of this huge ad agency and I was living in an apartment I needed to pay bills and, but I was so grateful because I went to work as just the low man administrative assistant for all the producers at this production company and that's where my video production career started to take off. Yeah. Well, I like the fact that you had a dream that you didn't just let die. You still continue to have that dream, even as you were going through maybe some advertising jobs that weren't necessarily the right fit for you. And then you step into something in video. Did you see that as like a step forward in the way, I mean, you talked about how you didn't necessarily know how it was going to connect the dots to what you wanted to do ultimately, but was it something that you felt like maybe there's a little bit of a step closer to, to what I wanted to do? Well, I have to tell you, I didn't when I was interviewing. I, it was like I was so desperate for work and I was so worried about paying bills that I was just like, I just want to get out of here and I want to go somewhere. So I'm just going to grab this job. But when I sat down at my new job, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. You know, because mm -hmm. what they were. Uh, the owner was a musician himself. He had a side hustle. Uh, and I say side hustle. He had a side business where he booked all the talent for all these venues in Kansas City uh, in the music scene. In the lobby of my new company was a white grand piano because my boss was a musician, you know. So he walked and talked and hung out with musicians. So that felt really good. Video production, they did fantastic work. And, and the offices were cool. And so all of a sudden I'm like, I've arrived, I've yeah. arrived. You know? So here I am answering the phones and filing and, you know, doing grunt work. But I was very energized because I'm like, I'm here. You know, I've got, yeah. I, this is, I'm on my way. 
so I, you know, the thing that I would tell you is you think you're being so strategic sometimes or whatever, but really when we just make the best next choice, it's really amazing how your life unfolds. You know, if you're not overly anxious about the end game, I was in exactly the right spot. That was a place for me to learn, a place for me to grow, a place for me to see really good people in action. They dealt with 35 millimeter film there, so I learned a lot. Um, uh, they had clients like U.S. Sprint at the time. You do remember the pin drop uh-huh. of, of U.S. Sprint? They did that. You know, okay. uh, we did, um, we had Hallmark cards. We had, um, uh, um, uh, the MDA muscular dystrophy association. So they were doing high end stuff that you would see on national television. So yeah, it was, and, and these are all like commercials and things like that. Correct. They're mostly longer form. So ad agencies would be doing commercials, but we would be doing, uh, shows and specialty things like the pin drop yeah we did that but uh um we would do new product announcements or fundraising or you know those sort of things longer form yeah okay okay so yeah you're having this experience you're getting to be in an environment that really kind of fits all the things you enjoy i mean you're in some type of video you're around music and you have people that have maybe hopefully a passion for it because they're around it every day in a sense so Looking back at that experience, how did those little experiences there kind of shape you and, and kind of guide you into the next the next opportunity? Well, it's interesting how bad and good kind of came together there. You know, my personal life was kind of unraveling. Um, I was a couple years out of college at this point and uh, four years into a really unhealthy romance and um so my personal my person was becoming uh just slaughtered you know who I saw myself as and um what I believed about myself what I believed about God what it just it was just a a terrible time while I'm here it's a sort of energizing uh amazing group of talented people doing really interesting things and so it was this, you know, uh, kind of a wave of um, good and bad. But what wound up happening was two things. One was um, while I was struggling, my boss, the owner, sat me down and he said, if I were you, Carol, he goes, you have the personality, the talent, and the um, temperament of a producer. He goes, you need to go be a producer. And um, that I didn't even know the owner was paying attention to me. You know what I mean? Um, I didn't know what he saw. I didn't even fully understand what he meant by a producer. You know, uh, a video producer can be kind of thrown around, but a producer is a person that leads the project who is, is sort of, I always say, and you're in the building business, I always say it's, it's a home builder, you know? you're the guy who hires the contractors and hires whatever and carries around the vision of what this home should look like. To me, that's the producer. I didn't know that at the time. So I all of a sudden started going, well, what's that? What do you mean? You know? <laughs> and um, he said, you should go do film production and you should be a producer. 
And I, and I was talking to him about going home because I was needing to get away from this guy. And he goes, go home, do what you need to do. And then go, he said, move to Orlando because they're doing a ton of film production. It's going to be the next Hollywood. And, uh, and so I went home, I went home and, uh, cried all the way out the door because I love them you know but I was just I needed to go home and I uh, did that I went home and as God would have it um, met at a party here in Tulsa um, a guy who worked for a company called Impact Productions and it was a it was a film and video production company that told stories in the faith-based arena and I had never I'd never heard of that didn't understand it but that wound up being a, you know, the, when I felt like I was at my most broken, um, I felt like that opportunity came through. And I would love to tell you, I orchestrated it, made it happen. But, you know, I'm literally bumping into somebody at a party after having moved back to town. So, yeah, it was just, I just keep saying, you just got to just keep your, you know, Bob Goff always says, keep your head on swivel. Uh-huh. Have you ever heard him say that? Yes, I have. Just looking around and seeing what the next thing is, and just believe that the next thing that is good for you is coming, you know, and that the dark days are going to get you where you need to go, you know, and um, uh, uh, so impact on just changing my life. Yeah. Well, and I don't want to skip over too because you said you didn't feel like your boss at the time really was watching you or anything like that. But in the meantime, you were still doing a great job and working hard at what you did. So that allowed people to take notice of that. Right. So it's not like you were just kind of moseying through work, just going nine to five or eight to five, whatever it was, and, and just kind of doing the work and not really caring. Like you cared, you did a good job and, and people noticed that. And he felt compelled to tell you what he really felt like you should do. And obviously then you took, the next best step for yourself to get back and move back to Tulsa. And obviously you, you bumped into the guy who had impact productions. And obviously that, that was a kind of a, a pivot in your story to where it kind of changed your trajectory a little bit into something that mm-hmm. really aligned with a lot of the values and, and the things you care about. Right. Exactly. You, I couldn't have said it better. And uh, once you taste doing what you love to do, so film and video and storytelling, once you taste, that and you really super care about the outcome so you want to do a good job so we want to do a good job for sprint or hallmark or whatever but and you're satisfied right you see your finished product and you're like that's satisfying i did that it's beautiful it was effective it was productive but what happened at impact was i worked on projects to touch people's lives for good you know, to make their life better, to introduce them to a God who cares about them, to um, push them towards hope, you know, and all of a sudden, the outcome wasn't about was, is this product pretty? Or, of course, we wanted it to be, right? Sure. Or is this product compelling? Or did it move the needle on our metrics? You know, but it was, oh my gosh, you know, this could really touch someone, this could really mean something to someone, this could really change the trajectory of someone's life, or this could give someone hope that's really feeling hopeless. And uh, that's, once you have that kind of experience where 
the outcome is that important to your heart. <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't have to be faith. It can be you care about the foster system or you care about a recovering addict. So you care about homelessness, but when, when your passions can, you know, intersect with your job, what a privilege, what a privilege. And, yeah. uh, that's one that I just couldn't get over. <laughs> so I worked there for several years and uh, the team of people became to this day, you know, my closest friends. Um, and uh, although I kind of hit a ceiling of growth there, I did eventually leave to go out on my own, but I never quit working with Impact. I was um, a producer that they hired regularly for years and years and years. And Tom Neiman and I were very good uh collaborators he was um, magical at getting work and earning trust from people out in the market and then I was his go-to person to execute the jobs and um and come up with the concepts or whatever and and he uh Tom attracted um so much young talent uh and the talent was exceptional like he had uh, a video guy there that was uh, had come out of film school, uh, out of still photography school. And he had an unbelievable eye for lighting, whatever. He, he had a sound guy there that was amazing. He had editor, you know, he, uh, Tom just attracted talent. So for me, I my career was really growing, growing, growing because I was around these people that were very excellent. I mean, Andrea Jokes is one of my best friends now, just amazing imagination, amazing writer. Uh, Mark Steele, one of the funniest, most delightful, most talented writers, authors, directors out there now. He and I shared an office. So those uh, part of what grows you isn't just the job or the boss or the supervisor, but it's your colleagues. And so impact felt like such a privilege for me. Even as I say it now, I realize how lucky and blessed I was because I was shaped just as much by my peers, you know, as we would kind of struggle and uh, to get these jobs done. And, you know, inevitably the jobs were low budget and we, you had to be more creative than ever to get these things off the ground. But we did. And we, and here's some full circle of that. I said, you know, there's these ad awards. We were doing commercials for churches. I said, we should submit these to the Addies. And uh, I had not been to the Addies since I worked at that agency when I was an intern in Tulsa. Okay. And uh, anyway, uh, we entered the Addies. No one knew who we were. And we just, we ran away with the whole show. We got best of show in every category. We won every category. And uh, it was just such a fun event for me to come in as a producer, you know, of these mm -hmm. things and, and enjoy that. But I mean, it's like my bicycle moment all over again because I have these dreams. But I could do none of those commercials, none, none, as well as they were done without this unbelievable team around who were just excellent at what they did, you know? Yeah. And I just, uh, absolutely. Well, and, and you talked about early on getting in, in, in the business that you're in the impact. And basically when I hear the word impact and what you just described, I feel like that was the, you wanted to do everything you guys did back at all the companies you've been at. You wanted to do things at a high level, be the best, but at the same time, you wanted to impact people. And so that's exactly. what you guys were, were doing. 
And then okay. obviously you're around great talent because it's, it takes a team, right. To, to do all mm -hmm. the stuff that you're doing. So you have these mm -hmm. good people around you that are able to be really good at certain particular components of creating a film and whatnot. And so, uh -huh. um, you know, when you're going through things and you're trying to do things like you said, on a low budget or whatever it might be hitting a deadline, you know, you're pressing through a little bit of pressure, a little bit of adversity with people. And so you develop this sense of, of a deeper relationship because that just naturally happens no matter what, whether you're playing sports and you're going through two a days in football or, or whatever it might be, there's uh, these things that shape you and you build these relationships with people. And so you said that obviously you had great talent around you, which enabled you to win an awards and stuff. And then ultimately you wind up going and becoming a producer and going on your own. How did that take shape and, and what compelled you to take the step to go out on your own and to have the confidence to go do that? Well, um, there was probably a few things going on. One was, uh, there was some, um, opportunity that I was being approached, uh, to do, um, outside just some, you know, uh, friends, new friends who had an opportunity who felt I would be a good fit. Um, and there was also some frustrations inside, um, having uh in i just will say in production it's a male dominated industry and as a woman it was just hard to kind of get uh it was hard to be seen as a person that would be a leader i had a leadership position at impact but so i sort of kind of hit a ceiling i wasn't really growing in responsibilities after being there many years and so um i was hungry and you know i i don't even think i understood how hungry i was to you know to grow and um loved all those people i worked with but there was also some dysfunction um there was some kind of uh not good behavior going on um that was uh, troubling me and not really kind of being taken care of on the management level and so you know you have all those things that happen you could say oh that's bad and you can say that dysfunction is bad and that, um, you know, perceived, um, you know, limitations because I was a woman, that's bad. And, and the tendency is to sort of chuck the organization into the bad pile. But the reality is, is everywhere you go, there are those challenges and nothing is as fairy tale as you think. And while there were talented people that I adored and friends that came out of there that are still my dear friends today like Andrea and Mark um they <clears throat> the the things that God uses in the brokenness of our world to get us to the next place so I think I just was restless I was a little unhappy I was a little uncomfortable and um I was hungry and so this other opportunity was wrong for me it was a bad fit it was very corporate didn't have that end game that I was telling you about that so motivated my heart. It uh, didn't um, provide any of that camaraderie I was looking for, but it was a huge opportunity to step out on my own, work for myself, and it was going to mean more responsibility, more money, and I was looking for both. And I said, okay, I'm going to resign from impact and I'm going to go do this. I'm going to start a company. And um, 
I did all of that. I resigned and it was a big deal because, you know, Tom Newman just felt like I was going to be there forever. And he was just really sad that I was leaving. And I was sad because, I was, you know, it was just all those mixed emotions, like breaking up with a boyfriend, you know, <sighs> and um, I go out and I'm feeling whatever. And do you know what happened? Um, that job was with Enron. The client was Enron. And that's when everything went. Uh, oh, wow. Well, it was really before that. So Kenneth Lay, who wound up going down with Enron years when it did go down, what was happening when I went there was, I, and I wasn't going to Enron. I was taking up this huge job from Enron. And what happened was I uh, had it. And then the new CEO, Kenneth Lay, <laughs> he stopped the job. So here I was without a job. I had just resigned. My brand new client, just 86, the whole huge multi-year project. And there I sat. Well, yeah, without yeah. a job. <laughs> but that got me out on my own. And I wound up taking on some jobs for Impact Freelance. And I wound up making some other relationships. And I started the job, the, the world of being an entrepreneur, which I never expected to be. Yeah. But, so what, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, yeah. Just what were some of the first things that you did um, as you did freelance work and, and started to kind of do your own thing? Um, I'm just trying to remember. I, I started reaching out to um, people that were contractors that I've worked with. And I think I was always uh, shimmying up next to other people. Like, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? I, uh, I started doing, I had background in doing prints. And so I started representing an, a guy who is a super talented uh, graphic designer, started representing him and getting him business. And um, I mean, I was like uh, scrambling and I wasn't, um, and I knocked on doors of other production companies like Impact that I had met through the years of working at Impact. And started getting jobs here and there as a producer, as a writer. I did a lot of writing uh, and I just started kind of scrambling and it was not a fun time. It was a time of hustling, but it was a good eye-opening experience of how much I appreciated the gifts that Tom had to make it rain, you know, to <laughs> bring in that business, you know, that's hard work. And uh, so I was doing that for a while and uh I was trying to think of what was next, but I eventually went to work again for another company and uh, uh, Christopher Sound and Vision was the name of it. Okay. And, and uh, it was a short-lived production company, but they wanted someone to come and be the head of their, pro their video production. They had a music studio and it was uh, 5A. I mean, like their facilities were incredible and beautiful. And the owner was a huge visionary and inexperienced in production, but a, a visionary nonetheless. Uh, they hired a guy in sales to get new business with somebody that I had known at Impact. And so I was having this old friend, you know, there. And so I went to work there. And it was uh, also an adventure, but I, the startup, and the uh, getting new business stuff kind of rolled off my shoulders onto somebody else. And I was 
breathing deeply and I was drawing a salary and I was, I was still learning. And so I was really glad not to be uh, doing that. Yeah. You kind of <laughs> got a little breather to be able to go do the things you're good at. Yeah. Right. And interestingly, uh, that company uh, had everything in terms of equipment and polish and beautiful things. But um, uh, the the owner just wasn't super experienced and he wasn't uh, he was probably doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, in hindsight, he was um, trying to prove something, you know. I, you don't know this when you say yes to things, sure. but when you got in there, it was uh, crazy and not very successful. And uh, I was uh, approached by uh, somebody, a dear friend who was a physician, and he said, you should go out on your own. You can do this. You can do this. I'll help you. Let me give you some money to help you get started. And why don't you go out on your own? And I had some ideas for television. And uh, he said, I want you to produce those and sell those. Let's try it. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so I resigned and I went back out on my own, but this time with an investor and some um, capital to kind of help me get off the ground and mm -hmm. somebody who really strongly believed in me, which meant a lot. And, um, and away I went. Yeah. So what were the things you were doing that, that you kind of the, the vision that you had and what were the, the, the things you were doing? Um, they were, uh, there was a World War II uh, idea called the Reunion Project. And um, I had a dream of telling stories of World War II veterans. Now, keep in mind, this is the late 90s. And um, the idea, I had had the idea for years. But Saving Private Ryan had come out. Um, and other films in that genre, uh, A&E had started doing the History Channel that was new. And um, the History Channel was almost all World War II all the time. I mean, it was just constant stuff. Well, I wanted to do a story about how um, people stay connected. People at home with people abroad that were fighting for us. And how did they stay connected relationally? How did they keep it together? How did they keep their relationships tethered? And um, I wound up receiving over 200 letters from different World War II veterans telling me their stories and how they stay connected to wives back home, to moms and dads back home, to siblings back home. And they were as different and as uh, charming as people are. You know, they no two letters are the same. No one said the same things. I heard everything. I heard all the stories from sad to funny to tragic, but all just amazing stories. So the idea was to do a, a history channel. And I had a guy um, from the history channel coaching me how to get this going and how to make this happen. But it never saw the light of day. <laughs> oh really? Because yeah, and it's just one of those things that you sort of look up and go, how did why did that not work? But um he wound up leaving to work for Nielsen Ratings. And he had to drop all that he was working on to show no uh favoritism towards any show. Because mm. he was working for Nielsen, he had to have total objectivity. Isn't that strange? So uh I got passed off to someone at the History Channel and they didn't really have a vision for it. And they said, we're really looking for something other than World War II. So here, this guy was at History Channel and was helping me get it there. 
to where they needed it to be. And then this new guy was like, no, thank you. And such is the world of television and film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is only as good an idea as the person who's buying it. You know what I mean? Like if the guy who's buying it thinks it's great, then it is a great idea. But if the guy who's buying it doesn't think it's a great idea, you know, you never see the light of day. That's how tentative and anyway. So that was one of the ideas that we worked on for a long time. And then the other was uh, sports performance with Bailey. I think I shared this with you, which is uh, so right up your alley, but it's just sports psychology. And we wanted to do uh, some programming around that subject. And we wound up going to State Farm offices in is State Farm in Indianapolis. Where is, there, where is that? So long ago, but they're yeah. major headquarters. And we met with the uh, two vice presidents of State Farm. <laughs> I mean, we really got ourselves in the door. And they said, will you please sit on this? For 30 days and um they took it very seriously they were going to adopt it sponsor it and then uh create advertising with this concept on espn and uh they uh 30 days later their ad agency said don't do it <laughs> we i didn't realize i was too young to realize i was i was kind of threatening an ad agency relationship by coming in with this idea so it just got dropped. And so I was like, okay, we'll try someone else. And uh, uh, in the meantime, that Christopher Sound of Vision job from, that I had for about a year, I had a client called Wintercom and I started doing contract work for Wintercom and they liked the idea and they were a programming provider for ESPN. So they took it to ESPN and um the woman said yes let's do it i want to do 52 episodes the whole one a week give me a budget we were so excited and we put together this proposal and this budget and we give it back to her and she's gone and she had gone out on emergency leave because she was pregnant and uh so emergency maternity leave sooner than she was expecting and uh, so we kind of were in limbo for a little bit and then she never came back and decided to stay home with mom, good for her. <laughs> and so we got passed off and what do you think happened? The guy said, oh, I don't like this idea, forget it. And so it died. So isn't that interesting? In the yes. meantime, I'm doing and making relationships and, and what winds up happening is I wind up getting a job at Wintercom and I wound up working there for four years. And they were the largest provider of programming for ESPN. And, but do you see, it's in the pursuit of these dreams that the door is open. And if there's a big takeaway there, it just sounds like a bunch of like, this happened and this happened. But the reality is, is you're, you're in forward motion. And so you learn from the attempt. And so the ideas sit and they percolate and they get you going and they move you forward. And some ideas are exercised and and executed and they see an audience and some don't but along the way you meet people and doors open and other things so working at wintercom was a fantastic experience for me and again maybe not connecting to my faith and the, that outcome that was so exciting to me but my gosh did i learn so much about network television about getting a, a weekly show out i did two seasons of a reality show on espn and then i did some documentaries for them and um, I learned, 
I learned so much and I was growing and I was happy and I was stable and I wasn't having to, you know, get new work. And I was growing a department because I was the only one there that was doing the random jobs. So if anybody came in that didn't fit one of their sports categories, and that's how I got my next thing. I wound up doing work for a client that was in the same building as Wintercom. It was a big gas line company. And I started doing those just on the side. And, um, and then that owner called me one night at home and said, I want to talk to you about starting a company. So do you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. I, you're just doing your work. You're doing the best you can. You're learning and growing and you're attempting some things of vision or you're not. I mean, when, when this gentleman called me, I was not pursuing any big dreams, the sports performance and, and the reunion project had kind of, you know, fallen off. The, yeah. But, but I just, I can't encourage people enough to, you just keep moving forward and you just keep, keep your head on the swivel and you keep looking for opportunities to learn and to grow and to meet people and to connect. And then you keep those ideas close to your heart and you look for opportunities to exercise them. And it's amazing what comes out and when, and when the, so finally this guy winds up supporting, I mean, it wasn't his plan. It wasn't the design, this uh, client of winter comms that I wind up starting a company with, but it was in that company that I launched a major feature film that had a wide release, which very few independent films can do that. But it was a wide release. It opened in uh, theaters from coast to coast all at once through Samuel Goldwyn. And uh, it was called Home Run. And Home Run was an expression of every experience I've ever had from Kansas City to advertising to uh, working so much influence. In fact, I partnered with Tom Newman. We were co-producers on Home Run. It, so my impact productions experience, my wintercom experience, all of it comes together in this movie Home Run. And I just want to shoulder off every person under the age of 30 and say, or under the age of 35 and say, the most obscure experiences you're having, those things that you think do not have anything to do with where you want to be in life, you will be so surprised. But my advertising experience, my print experience, my uh, experience with designers, my experience with uh, um, uh, television, um, networks, all of it, all of it came to bear on Home Run. And Home Run to this day is probably my greatest privilege to lead and execute a feature film with the message of hope. Um, I felt like I just, uh, won the lottery. Yeah. And, uh, well, and I, it, it was a great experience. Yeah. Talk about home run because, uh, you know, won tons of awards, I think, uh, might've been like the highest grossing, uh, faith film out there at the time. And, and yep. it was a great, great, great film, but what does it take to get a film done from start to finish and actually have it go and be successful? Well, it was, um, a I mean, we started, we decided to do it. Tom suggested it to me in 2010, January, and it saw theaters in April of 2013. So it's a, it's a marathon <clears throat> and it was still, uh, you know, 
um, going in 214 with a distribution to DVD and whatever. So it's a long thing. But um, what it takes, it takes, um, first of all, I think you have to trust yourself. You know, I, I was given the baton to lead it. And we had many iterations of screenplay. And I kept saying, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. It was really frustrating to people. <laughs> but <clears throat> I trusted myself. And I trusted that God was leading and helping. And I'm so glad. Because what we wound up shooting was the right script. It wasn't, it's not an Academy Award winner. But it was the right script. And all the things that messages I wanted to send about addiction and recovery and hope and um, that it's possible and that we all struggle and it's not just chemical addicts and alcoholics, but we all struggle. Those messages were sent and received by the audiences. To me, that was so, message was so important. Um, so the scripting, the relationships are, it's so hard to have creative relationships with your dear, dear friends because you're gonna disagree. So there's, uh, it takes a lot of fortitude and a lot of faith and a lot of forgiveness on both sides. You know, they need to forgive me. I need to forgive them. There's a lot of sleep deprivation. There's a lot of bad days. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of scallywags in the, um, the arena. So when we're working with people from LA, um, they don't share the same values. Um, on set, I had some people uh, on the production set from Atlanta doing some really not awesome things in terms of protocol and control. And I had some people, um, you know, screwing around with money. So you just, uh, you know, you have some really bad days and you feel in over your head and you have weather problems, you know, like I just yeah. can't say how excruciating it all is. And then you're dealing with a distributor who may or may not agree with you and your vision and, how they want to message around the film and how they want to talk about the film. It was hard and it was lonely at times and it was uh, uh, nerve wracking at times, you know, but I look back at it and I think, you know, it was God's, you know, he was the one who brought it. He was the one who birthed it. And, you know, all the outcomes are his and, and the bad ones, I say he has to decide what he's going to do with all that. You know, like, yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, but it wound up going uh, to a distributor, which was the largest DVD distributor in the world. And, and, and when you say DVD, it's DVD and digital. So they are responsible for getting it to the Netflixes and the iTunes and all that. So we got a great deal with that company. So after we were in theaters, we went there. And um, after nine months in that company, uh, they went bankrupt. Uh, so I, just to give you an idea of the film world, the largest DVD distributor in the world <laughs> went bankrupt. And uh, we were nine months in, and our sweet film went into prison, bankruptcy prison. And so it has not been free really and that was, i didn't realize uh -huh. that yeah so it's so funny because you're just uh, as a god person you're like that's not gonna happen to me because god's behind it <laughs> you know 
But the fact of the matter is, is just there are the good days and the bad days and the disappointments and the highs. I got to sit in a theater and hear people weep. I got to receive letters and and emails and texts from people from all over the country who saw it. I got a call from a South African uh, Christian bookstore owner who sold Home Run. He says, they are flying out of here. Um, Australia loved Home Run. Uh, South America loved Home Run. These things are huge privileges. And the idea that those messages of hope went out to all those corners is one of my greatest joys. One of my biggest heartaches is the bankruptcy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we had investors and they were on course getting all their money back and, you know, and then all the money stopped flowing. Mm. Like that. Yeah. So, so it, that, I mean, there's a, there's a lot right there. I mean, you, you sit there and you talk about your experiences. It's almost like you just, it's like a boxer. You just get punched and punched and, and it feels like a setback or a setback. But what you talked about a little bit earlier is, is that you just keep moving forward. You keep moving forward. And then obviously with home run, you know, it, it's more of a marathon. So you have all these different things just to get the film finished and completed. And, you know, you said it started the idea in 2010, 2013, it goes in 2014, you have distribution. And then all of a sudden, Another thing happens 2015. where 2015 it goes bankrupt. And so all this stuff happens, but at the same time, you know, you sit there and you say it with a smile, <laughs> but you keep moving forward. And uh, you know, the, the things that you've done are able to impact people, not just in the U S but all over the world. And so kind of goes back to the company that you started before the name impact, like you're making an impact because of the things that you're doing, because you have a dream and you're going after it and you keep moving forward. So it's cool to see that all take shape, even though there's a lot of disappointment along the way. There's mm -hmm. setbacks or disappointment, there's frustration, um, but you keep moving forward and you keep, uh, you know, sharing the message that you feel like, you know, God's brought in your heart and doing a good job with it. So going off of that, you talked about wanting to give people hope through the movie. Talk about what you're currently doing today uh, with Hope Rising. Oh, well, uh, so now I have a company, Hero Productions. And Hero, uh, that name came because of, uh, um, I really, all the reunion project and sports performance was all about everyday heroes. And, um, and I, I realized that I love telling stories of, of everyday people doing heroic things. And so um, that's the company I have now. And that's the company I've had now for several years. And, and Hero Productions was the production company for Home Run, the movie, just kind of giving you context. Sure. So moving forward after Home Run and bankruptcy and utter and complete devastation to me and, uh, you know, and just, and believe me, I'm smiling now, but it's been a hard road of recovery for myself. Um, I am really, with the help of a dear friend that we both know, um, really kind of reframed my own career. And in order to move forward, I really needed to know where am I going after this huge disappointment? And I didn't have a frame. And I, I'm telling you, executive coaching is really helpful if you can obtain somebody who can kind of bounce back and reflect back to you what they're seeing. And Bailey, by the way, you're so good at that. Like in this whole... Um, Paul, you've been so good at reflecting back and contextualizing, kind of summarizing, which I always need people to summarize me. But, <laughs> um, 
but so I am really loving doing any work I can do for visionaries. That has been one constant my whole life. Telling stories has been a constant, but helping visionaries, uh, people with great vision, that has been a constant in my life. It's been a privilege working with pastors and nonprofit leaders and uh, uh, people that want to make this world better and then getting behind them and helping them with how they tell their story, doing videos for them, helping them with print and web and just doing it in such a way with their storytelling. And um, in that, one of my biggest and best situations that I'm working in right now is with the First Lady of Oklahoma, Sarah Stitt, has started an organization called the Sarah Stitt Hope Foundation in conjunction with the OU Center, uh, Hope Research Center, and Dr. Chan Hellman at OU. Uh, Dr. Hellman and Casey Gwen wrote a book called Hope Rising. In that book, they uh, aggregate a ton of studies, both from OU and other universities around the world and other institutions about the science of hope. And it is so amazing. And when I'm talking about hope, they define hope as believing that tomorrow can be better than today and that I have a role in making it so. And it is, um, they talk about people with high hope and low hope and people with high hope simply have a goal. They have a pathway of how they, they believe they'll achieve the goal and they have the willpower to walk the path. And people with low hope, they might have the willpower and a goal, but they might not know how to get there. They might have um, uh, a goal in the pathway, but they don't have the willpower. Those people are low hope, okay? People without a goal, without a vision, low hope, okay? So what we're doing is we, they have found that if you can raise the hope in a child two points, like from on a scale of like zero to 80 something, if you can raise the hope in a school-age child two points, you'll raise their letter grade one letter. Really? Okay. We've learned that people with high hope recovery, recover from surgery faster. We've learned that people with high hope are more likely to stay married. People with high hope, uh, foster children that leave the foster system with high hope are more likely to live productive lives and have healthy families than uh kids with the exact same scenarios in their history, same trauma, it's low hope, they can't. And get this, the biggest, most exciting thing about this at all is that it can be taught and it can be exchanged. You and I can do it. I don't need to have a degree to raise your hope. You don't have to to have mine. It's easily learned and easily passed on. So imagine hope uh, schools, hope center schools where teachers know how to raise their own hope, raise their hope in each other as colleagues, and then help raise the hope in children. Um, imagine get, you know, social workers being able to raise the hope in foster kids. You know, it is the difference between a foster child leaving the foster system and becoming a statistic in crime and incarceration and, and becoming a productive member of our community. Um, uh, uh, first responders with high hope do so much better in overcoming their own response, uh, trauma responses. Uh, they see and hear horrible things, but if they can raise their own hope, they can manage all of that better. So Sarah Stitt, uh, First Lady Sarah Stitt, Sarah Stitt, <laughs> First Lady Sarah Stitt is planning 
and doing, and I am working with her, we're doing Hope Rising Summit. And we're starting our pilot summit in Enid in October. And we are asking community leaders, get this, uh, a high hope individual in business is, forgive it, it's uh, 20 some percent more productive, a person with high hope in business than a person with low hope. So just, I, it's amazing that a business could just be more productive if, if managers understood how to inspire hope. Okay, so, um, uh, so we're wanting to go into community with the Hope Summit, and we want to invite business leaders, nonprofit leaders, uh, first responders, school teachers, educators to this uh, one-day event where they are trained in the science of hope, and they have breakout sessions, and they begin to talk to one another about how they can become a hope-centered community. And then we're just going to be taking this dog and pony show on the road and we're going to be taking it all around all the different counties of Oklahoma and we believe that this hope science is going to actually change the face of Oklahoma and it is the vision of Sarah Stitt to make Oklahoma the first hope centered state and for everyone who's listening and curious about it this uh, Sarah Stitt Hope Foundation is separate from the governor's office so regardless of what happens with the governor and, and, and his political career, this is something that the Stits are committed to in Oklahoma. And, and we're going to be all the better for it. And what our end game is to be kind of a city on a hill and a vision uh, for a, a hope builder for the rest of the country. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's a fantastic uh, ability to share something as simple as hope. Um, and, and go ahead. And would you mind just defining that again? What do you guys define hope as? Um, hope, the definition that they're using is that tomorrow can be better than today and that I have the power to, I, I have the power to play a role in that. Yeah. I love that because it's something that, you know, that mindset, having that mindset and thinking, you know, I have the power to make today or tomorrow better than today and then keep moving forward. It goes back to kind of what we talked about with you, but it's also, it's not just this feel good stuff. There's science behind it. And it's helping people live a more prosperous and hopeful life and making our communities in, in any place that we're at better. And so exactly. you're getting to share exactly. that message. That's also impactful, right? So, right. And, and really, uh, I, I am getting to do everything again, like we're doing video storytelling and, and trying to show people what high hope looks like or what hope rising in, in, in the organization looks like. And then I'm doing print and I'm doing live events, and so all of the stuff of our career, and, and I just love that none of my past, the good and the bad, the frustrations and the not, uh, you know, really go to waste, and, mm -hmm. um, and so here I am, you know, in my 50s, and I'm still getting to do these things, and, you know, uh, and it's just a joy. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, there's so many things that we could talk about from your experiences on, on all the, all the other stuff that you've done, you know, you've just, you know, you've been doing the, uh, the videos for the prayer, uh, for the governor of Oklahoma prayer breakfast. Um, there's lots of other things, but you know, one of the things is I want to wind it down because I want all your time, but one of the things I do want to touch on real quick before we kind of go into like the fire round and stuff is just you dealing with disappointment and how do you not, you know, view disappointment or failure as something negative, but it seems like 
you've been able to take the good out of that and continue to move forward because it's very easy in the moment. I mean, you know, as you say, you could smile and whatnot, but it doesn't, it was, it was hard, you know, to go through those things. You know, how do you, how do you move through that with more of a positive mentality, knowing with hope, actually hopes (laughs) with hope (laughs) for the future. Yes. And you know, it's interesting because I didn't have that language, but um, I think uh, it's not one thing. Number one, number two is um, all of it was super duper hard and super gut-wrenching you know the disappointments were big you know and uh and and there were transition points of transition that were super hard so I just don't ever want to look like it was easy because people feel like they're the only ones that feel alone sometimes and I just want to encourage everybody that there were like a you know multiple multiple times for that for me but I think community uh with shared values is imperative so if you don't have it in your family, you need to find it in your friends or your church or whatever, but their support um, was everything to me. Um, in the darkest days of my uh, bankruptcy of home run and then kind of just not knowing who I was and moving forward, I had a friend who came and didn't pay her and she came and she sat in my office with me just so I wouldn't be alone. And I just would kind of talk to her about my day and what I felt like I needed to work on. And she used to own her own business. So she would just kind of encourage me and then she would just put around on her phone. <laughs> I mean, what kind of friendship is that? You know, um, so community um, counseling, whether it's executive coaches, um, a counselor, a trusted counselor, but somebody who's life giving. Um, and, um, and again, with shared values, that counseling, community, and then, um, and then I would tell you just belief that there is God and that there's something bigger going on than just your career, than just your income. Belief that there's a bigger thing happening and that we're playing a role in making the world better and that God's working it out for good. I believe that. So I think those are the things that kind of got me through the harder days and still do. They still get me through the hard things. Absolutely. What great, great words of wisdom. Well, we'll, we'll move into the fire round. And so basically I'll just say a word and you can say whatever okay. comes to your mind first. Okay. okay. Curiosity. Um, like what am I curious about or just what just do I say that comes from? Curiosity. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious about my children. What, what What's going to come of them? But I, I'm sorry. That's not what you want to know, is it? No, no, that's great. Whatever you think. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay, go. I'll be faster next one. Go. Okay. Favorite vacation spot? Wherever all my family is, like my, my siblings and my nieces and my nephews and aunts and uncles, that's my favorite spot. Diligences. Diligences. Is that what you said? Yeah, diligence is. Oh, diligence is um, uh, Dory. Keep on swimming. I love that. That's awesome. Favorite uh, favorite movie producer, and then maybe slash movie that that you like because we didn't get to talk about you know some of the the mentors yeah. or people you like. But I, but what would that be? The flavor of the month because there's just too many amazing movies. But I will tell you where I am right now is um, Signs. Uh, M. Night Shalaman. Uh, the I can't say his last name very well, but his 
writing and directing is but that that movie in particular is brilliant awesome it all comes down to faith awesome we're done with the fire round you know a few questions to to kind of end it here one that i didn't get to touch on that i want to talk about is you know how do you stay connected, stay present. You talked about curiosity and you just want to be curious with your kids. How do you be uh, a great mother and a great uh, wife? (laughs) Well, I just want you to know that it's really hard to do it all well. You know, so uh, the days that you're being a great mom, you're probably not being a great business owner. Uh, The days that you're being super attentive to your business, you might not be super attentive to yourself. So, um, to me it's a balancing act it's Mm -hmm. about making sure you're making time for quality time for the people and the the roles that you play that are really important to you so whether it's sister friend wife mom business owner you just gotta you've gotta uh, figure out prioritize them and then make sure you've cut out time for them absolutely is there a certain piece of of best advice you've ever received Um, right now in this season, um, th- no, not one thing, but right now it is believe that you are the way you are for a reason and don't try to be like someone else, be you. And uh, God, I believe, has created us and knew our struggles and he's like, I'm going to use those struggles too. So. Yeah, we're all, that's all. Gifts. We're yeah, all about gifts. That's great. But God uses us in our weakness too. Mm-hmm. So this podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? You know, I love that you use the word building. Uh, because I believe that building excellence means that you're pursuing it and it's... Um, precept upon precept it's experience upon experience and for me it's doing my best and then asking god to invade invade it yeah awesome well carol you know thanks so much for being on the show thank you for sharing your story and some of the lessons that you learned thanks for sharing hope you know helping people understand how to get through disappointment but continue to to move forward and the one thing i really love is just don't wait you know, continue to move forward, just go after what those things are. And you can see how, as you pursue those things in your life and you, you've dreamt, uh, dreamt big and went after that, um, you've had things happen that, um, maybe you didn't know at the time, but it all, it all has worked its way and, and made, made, uh, you know, it's made a, uh, I don't know. It's, it's been something where it all has worked out. So yes. anyway, um, if someone wanted to connect with you and, and follow you, what would the best way to do that? Um, Carol at Hero Productions is my email and Carol S. Matthews with one T and Matthews is my handle for everything. So Twitter, um, Facebook, and, um, you know, uh, heroproductions.com is the website. Awesome. So if you haven't seen the movie, check out Home Run, check out Hope Rising um, and follow follow Carol on social. So thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. What a privilege, Bailey. Thank you so much. 
Hey everyone, it's Bailey Miles. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you found value in the show. And if you enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcast, writing a quick review, or leaving a five-star rating. When you do that, it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. If you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.